Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. He was an angry man. He had been in Vietnam twice. He drank a lot. And every night at dinner was like running the gauntlet, hoping he wouldn't explode. It was, it was very scary. So, but one night he was making fun of my sixth grade teacher. <laughs> and her name. And I just got so upset because as a sixth grader, I was very, you know, loyal to my teacher. And I stood up and I said, shut up, shut up, shut up. And well, he did not let me get by with that. He whipped around the table and just picked me up by the shirt and just started pummeling, like punching me in the face. He had never been that aggressive with me. And I was totally shocked and terrified. Uh, I think, um, I actually peed my pants. That's how terrifying it was. My mom just kind of floated away, but my sister actually intervened. She was seven years older and was like, dad, dad, get off her. Stop. And I just fell to the floor. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Chris Murray, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. I am excited to be here. Yeah. So I found out about you by way of your publicist, who I say is the best book publicist on the planet and the one person that we have literally never said no to when she's pitched as a guest because she's just that good at doing it. Um, So uh, you have a new book out called The Beauty of Conflict, which we will talk about. But before we get into that, I want to start by asking you, what is one of the most important things that you have learned from one or both of your parents that have shaped who you've become and what you've done with your life? And what would you say was one of the biggest conflicts that you had to deal with them with? Well, this is pretty easy. I, um, <laughs> I've been trying to recover from it for the, you know, it happened at 13 and I've continued mm-hmm. to try to recover it for my, the rest of my life. And it's with my dad. So he's my, he's my, um, quote unquote villain. And I'm, I'm actually working to make him beyond the villain, but he is, um, he's still alive. He's, uh, an army colonel. So we call him the colonel, which should tell you something. And (laughs) (laughs) he, um, and growing up, I was the youngest, so I think I got it the least, but, uh, he was an angry man. He had been in Vietnam twice. He drank a lot. And one day when I, can I just go ahead and tell you the story of what happened? Yeah, Yeah. So, you know, I, actually every night at dinner was like running the gauntlet, hoping he wouldn't explode. It was, it was very scary. So, um, but one night he was making fun of my sixth grade teacher <laughs> and her name. And I just got so upset because as a sixth grader, I was very, you know, loyal to my teacher. And I stood up and I said, shut up, shut up, shut up. And well, he did not let me get by with that. He whipped around the table 
and just picked me up by the shirt and just started pummeling, like punching me in the face. He had never been that aggressive with me. And I was totally shocked and terrified. Uh, I think um, I actually peed my pants. That's how terrifying it was. My mom just kind of floated away, but my sister actually intervened. She was seven years older and was like, dad, dad, get off her, stop. And I just fell to the floor in a puddle of one, my terror and shame because I'd soiled myself. And I ran upstairs. He told me, go upstairs, you know, and I just felt so terrified. He then came in probably under my mom's urging to kind of make it all better. And, but he was drunk. And so he was, you know, putting his arm around. Uh, and so he was way too close for this person that he had just traumatized with hitting. So it felt really icky. And from then on, I just learned, hey, I cannot stand up to him. I got to figure out how to survive. And I did by really becoming a people pleaser and an achiever and disconnecting from any sort of self-identity that I had and became, I mean, it took me really far. I became, I was an engineer at Boeing and one woman engineer out of 80 male engineers. I was an Olympic athlete. And I think all of that still was in play of like, who do you need me to be? And I will become it. And Mm -hmm. that's what I've been kind of recovering from because it wound up, I wound up having, I I remember you said I could have long answers. So I'm going to go ahead and do that. (laughs) I, um, I had gotten, I was in engineering. I went back and got my MBA. Then listening to my aunt, you know, I really wanted to go back and get a writing degree. And she said, honey, you're not going to be able to make money doing that. So I went back and got my MBA and started working at Arthur Anderson, was a manager at Arthur Anderson. I was you know, consulting these CEOs, telling them how to bring people along, which is something I knew how to deal with the people dynamics. But I was also a workaholic. I had a chronic back injury from the Olympics that wouldn't go away. I was in a relationship with a, an alcoholic, another alcoholic that I kept trying to fix and manage and control and cure. And that didn't work. And, and I had all this, I was allergic to 30 different things. I had chronic fatigue. I was just a mess. And I, basically in my 30s, kind of had a a breakdown at that point. And I just thought, I can't do it anymore. And that's when the pivot started to shift my my perspective of my life. Mm, wow. So I know from having read the book, um, you're not straight. And I, I feel like I can't get out of this conversation without asking you about that, just because I would imagine of all the conflicts you've dealt with in your life, that has to be one of the you know most difficult ones, just based what based on what you've told me alone about your dad and i i always wonder about this because i think that you know in the indian community if it's there it's virtually you know unheard of at least here i mean it's becoming more prevalent like we're starting to see it but like we don't talk about lgbt issues in the indian and asian communities we just kind of ignore them like they don't exist <laughs> um you know it's i mean part of why people like mira nair make such important films is because she's willing to go out and tackle issues like this but it does piss a lot of people off in india mm-hmm. um, because it's a conservative culture so you know i wonder one as somebody who is straight what misperceptions do you think I have about the experience that you've had with your life, um, both professionally and personally? And how is it to navigate that dynamic with a parent when you come out? Well, this this is a broad question because something else that happened after that big incident with my dad is I had been, uh, we were living in Georgia 
And I was in the, I was Catholic, but they didn't have very much fun. So I went over <laughs> to be with the Protestants <laughs> and they had like uh, dances and Bible studies. It was, they just had a community group. And I started dating, I don't know, you know, I'm, I think I'm 13, maybe 14. I'm not really sure. I started dating a 17 year old African-American boy. He's black. We called it black back then. And, um, and I just thought he was a cat's meow. I just thought, oh my gosh, this is so great. But, uh, what happened is, you know, here I am a young girl, never been kissed. And soon into the relationship, he takes me downstairs and proceeds to molest me. And I couldn't, I was so, again, shocked, traumatized. I didn't have a voice. I couldn't say no. So I became, um, I still dated boys after that. And I didn't pop out. So I'm not your typical gay woman. Um, lesbian woman. I didn't pop out as a lesbian. I am actually, I guess you'd say bisexual, which horrifies a lot of lesbians or gay people. You're either one or the other. So I'm attracted to men and women. And I dated men and I just happened to fall in love with a woman. And I've been in a same-sex relationship now. I've, I've had several, but I'm married and Susan and I have been together for well, over 20 years. So mm-hmm. So that's the first part of that question that, yeah. um, and, but to tell you how I dealt with it when, when I was working at Arthur Anderson, I was terrified of coming out and here I am in a progressive, supposedly progressive company, but this is all before the Enron thing. Um, I would pretend I wouldn't talk about my partner. I just kind of like, I was, I was good at pretending I was whoever you wanted to meet me to be. So I just pretended that la- part of my life didn't exist. And then Susan and I started working together and we'd go do executive offsites because we do this, you know, leadership and team building. And I'd be like, well, you get the dog. I'm not going to say I have a dog because we'll show them the same pictures. So I would basically right. just keep lying. And that's horrifying. Like I can't even be myself in my life. Yeah. So. Wow. Hopefully, I answered wow. that question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know it's a deep question. I think we could do an hour on just that alone. But um, yeah. So, one thing I think is, is fascinating to me is that you've had these really painful experiences early on in your life, and yet those very things planted the seeds for sort of this drive that you have to achieve. You know, to say, okay, you know what? Because of this pain, I'm going to pursue you know an Olympic gold medal. Mm-hmm. Um, why do you think some people react that way to circumstances like that? Because you turned it, I mean, despite maybe the, the motivation being negative, um, you actually turned it into something positive. And I know you actually talk about authority in the book, and I want to actually, we'll, we'll get there. But why do you think people have the reaction that you did? And why do you think people let that become sort of the bane of their existence and basically it just destroys them? You know, that's a good question. And I'm not in somebody else's shoes, so I can just talk from my own perspective is, it was it was kind of can I can I swear on this podcast? Yes, please. Okay, it, it yeah. was kind of like a fuck you. Like you are not <laughs> going to beat me down. Like and that's even even with rowing when I was training at the University of Washington and then on the National Olympic team. My coach <clears throat> was very similar to my dad. It was like, "Oh my god, I went from one place to another and he would put me down and I'm like, "You are not going to like no, I'm not going to let you win." One time we had to run a race because this was part of our training as we were racing and he needed a rabbit, somebody to, for everybody to chase, the fastest runner. And somebody said, oh, Chris Marie can do it. And he looked and he's like, she, no, she can't. Well, you know, I, I won that race because that, so I was always going to come up 
Like, you're not going to put me down. I had that kind of fire or spark. And I don't know really where that comes from. If I popped out with that, you know, sort of um, commitment or courage or willingness, Mm. but I know, I know that people, and I coach people and sometimes I'm amazed at when they're, uh, I'm, I'm starting a coaching session and here I see this amazing person and they are stopping themselves left, right, and center. And I think, oh my gosh, you cannot see what I can see. You know, it's so sad how we can stop ourselves from leaning into projects or, you know, wanting to be a speaker or wanting to start a new business. And people go, I can't do that. Well, I better not. It's like, oh my gosh, you've got so much horsepower. We just got to point it in the right direction. Yeah. Well, so, you know, when, when you say that to me, I think about, uh, this documentary that I saw on TV, it was with Tom Brady. It was called The Year of the Quarterback. And it was about, uh, I mean, I think anybody who follows the NFL, which funny enough, I don't, I just play sports video games, but I know things about <laughs> sports from sports video games because I play them religiously. But you know, he's a sixth round draft pick. And there's almost a sense that there's this giant ship on his shoulder. He even mentioned it. He said, you know, everybody doubted me. And it was kind of the thing where he literally walked up to Bob Kraft, the owner of the Patriots on the first day of practice, fourth string quarterback, sixth round draft pick. And he walks up to the owner of the Patriots and says, my name is Mr. Yeah, Tom Brady, Mr. Kraft. And Bob Kraft looks at him and says, I know who you are. And he says, I'm going to be the best decision you've ever made. Oh. And, you know, and the thing is that what I wonder having thinking about that story is that, you know, when you have this sort of, this is a giant fuck you, because I know it, I've had it in my mind with girls I've broke that have broken up with me that I'm going to prove to you that this was a mistake by going out <laughs> and crushing it. Um, and what I wonder is when you get to the heights of something like an Olympic gold medal, do you feel that you've achieved the redemption you were looking for? Oh, golly. You know, that is, I just relate to, I have to just at this, I relate to Tom Brady, not in that, that, hubris of going up to the coach. But when I showed up, um, I was, I'm short, I'm five foot six and I wasn't an athlete in high school. And so when I showed up to try out for the rowing team, there was 110 other women and they were all giants. And the head coach walked up to me and said, Hey, do you want to be a coxswain? And I'm like, well, I don't even know what that is. I had only seen rowing on TV. <laughs> what? <laughs> and uh, she's uh, somebody next to me said, that's a small person who steers. And I said, no, I want to row. And she just turned on a dime and walked away. And I, I didn't let it bug me. Um, and then I had been rowing with her out in the, the top of the squad and I got booted down to the assistant coach's squad. And I walked up with to the assistant coach and I was like, hey, why aren't I, I should be out there with her. Like, why am I with you? Like total, you know, arrogance on my part. And she said, listen, if looks could kill, she said, listen, you're a squirt. If you're going to do anything in this sport, you got to lose the attitude you got to uh, learn how to make boats go fast and learn how to work on a team. And I was like, mm. okay, I'll, I'll, I could do that. And, yeah. um, and, and worked my way up into making it to that first boat that first year and winning Pac-10s back then. So, um, mm. but what happened, so what you may not know is my crowning duel, we won nationals twice when I was uh, rowing. And the second time I was the stroke, which is the leader of the boat and the team captain. And that was magical. And then I went on to the national team and we, it was the year before the Olympics. And that year uh, was my, again, my most magical experience in my national team, not the Olympics, because um, that boat, you know, I was young, wet behind the ears. I had made it into the boat. Technically, I probably should have been the stroke or leader of the boat, but I was new. And so it was kind of like, let's have the, 
you know, the veteran beat a stroke and I was fine with that. And that boat, we trusted each other. We, we pulled together, we made decisions, we had each other's backs and we were coming in, not expected to do anything at the world championships, which is what every, like the Olympic year, everybody kind of has the world championships all together. That's a simple version of what it is. And, uh, the Russians were really dominant and there they were over in lane one where the water was all smooth, which is an asset in rowing. And we were all the way over on the other end, choppy water. We had a couple of false starts, which means, you know, you have to pull the boats back and start again. And we started and the Russians started like a shot, but halfway through we started moving on the Russians. And that's what the coxswain said, we're moving on the Russians. And our boat just ignited. And in the end, Romania won gold. We won silver, but we are all so happy to topple the mighty Russians. We pulled the boats to the dock and this big Romanian woman, I mean, she was probably 6'2", came over. She had white, sho- you know, shock- shocking white hair. And she picked me up in her arms. She picked another U.S. rower up in her arms. Like, we beat the mighty Russians. And uh, that was probably my happiest moment. And uh, And then what happened during the Olympic year is I was ex- we were expected to medal, and I had gotten injured six months before the games, so everybody was racing and getting faster. And literally, I um, was close to suicide because I was isolating here. My Olympic dreams. It was three months where I was off the water, and I just did not want to. I just thought, who am I without this? Who am I? And didn't want to live. I was so ashamed that I couldn't row. And, uh, it wasn't until, um, this PT said, Hey, she, I walked in and I must've had a black cloud on my head. She knew what I was kind of like struggling with. And she said, friend, we're doing a lot to fix your body, but you've got to fix your head. Otherwise nothing's going to work here. And she gave me this book called the mental athlete, which is old now, but it was about using visualization to still train while you're injured and and I started doing that. And lo and behold, when June, when the Olymp- selection camp came around, I got an invitation, which I didn't think I would get. And I talked to the doctors and I'm like, listen, uh, he's, he was like, you can go race. And if you hurt yourself, we'll know it and you'll, get a, you'll do surgery or you can wait four more years and heal. And I was like, I cannot deal with this angst for four more years. So I went to the selection camp in June and kind of climbed my way back up making it to the Olympic Eight. But that boat was not cohesive. I mean, I didn't speak up. So I pulled myself out and made myself less than because here I was injured and I just, you know, made it. And we had some egos in the boat, some factions. And we were using this experimental boat that even now, I had a conversation like 30 years later, because this is 1988, with a teammate. She said, oh, we saw you folks getting slower and slower. And I'm like, why didn't you tell us? Uh, it was a boat that was designed perfectly on the computer, and it's really hard to set up our balance. And uh, so we went to the games, and we wound up getting to the final, but we came in last. And that was horrifying. And you know that boat never spoke to each other again. So then I spent 10 years thinking I was a loser because I had lost at the Olympics, which was part of the whole piece I talked about earlier, you know, like becoming a workaholic and trying to be perfect in every way because I couldn't deal with the fact that we had lost. And that's when my life kind of, uh, in 98, kind of imploded. And I had to find a different source of my inspiration versus 
you thinking I was okay or winning the medals or pleasing my dad or the coach. One of my favorite ways to spread the message of our mission here at The Unmistakable Creative is through speaking. In the last two years, I've delivered keynotes and workshops to professional associations, large companies like Citibank and Meredith Corp, and even small ones on how creativity can lead to better working environments, fuel innovation, and increase the bottom line. So if you think I'd be a fit for your upcoming event and want to learn more, visit speaking.unmistakablecreative.com and get in touch. Again, that's speaking.unmistakablecreative.com. That's a long so story. Long sounds, answer. <laughs> no, it's it's actually perfect, and I think it really does set us up really well. You know, it's funny because I asked uh, a recent guest this. You know, he was talking about the difference between process and outcomes, and I, you know, said to him, he said, you know, how does one become a processed focus? person in an outcome-oriented world because society doesn't reward us for the process. They reward us for the outcome. My publisher doesn't give a shit if I enjoy my writing of the book. They care if I sell copies. Um, That's just a harsh reality of capitalism. Now, that being said, I think every spiritual tradition, um, every person that I've ever talked to on this show has always repeated the notion that, yes, you think this thing that you get externally is going to make you happy, but when you get it, you'll realize that not only will it not make you as happy as you think it will, whatever the thing is won't last. And so I wonder, it sounds to me like you have become a person who was driven by achievement and outcomes, um, not only having accomplished those outcomes, but somehow have made the shift to being a person who is detached from outcomes, or am I misreading that? Oh, and- you are giving me way too much credit. But- <laughs> Well, it sounds like you you've been enlightened enough to recognize the importance of that and, you know, have made some changes to your life. And again, like I always tell people, I ask these pe- questions for my own morbid curiosity and my own personal problems. If other people happen to benefit, that's convenient. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But did you finish your question? Did I interrupt yeah. you? Yeah. No, okay. that, that that yeah. I um I am still I still love outcomes. I mean, I love making money. I love when I get to speak. You know, I get the big gig. I I love the high. And so I love winning of selling, like what you're saying, because we have books, selling books, all those sorts of things. I have just learned to expand and recognize that I matter in the process. And it's really, you think about, you know, we play games, we do music, we write books. It's, I think, and I'm going to be speaking to the the rowers and their parents and the alumni in a couple of weeks. And I, while I was writing the the talk, it's really, you think it's about the winning. And while that's important, it's really about who you're becoming as you're rowing or pursuing this goal that really matters. And you can pursue a goal and chew yourself up, which I did over and over again. Or you can pursue a goal and also have fun and take care of yourself. And I thought that was a bunch of baloney. Like, no, I have to sacrifice and work hard. It's got to be miserable. And that's how I lived a lot of my life. But I have learned, no, actually, I have much more of me when I treat myself well and I set, I rig the game to win. Somebody once said, Chris Murray, you don't rig the game to win. Like you're always putting yourself down. And so setting it up where I celebrate my successes, but I have to remember that. I have to constantly remember that I matter, how I feel matters, the process is part of, that's that's what we're doing here in this world. Uh-huh. And um, too often, like they have this term Olympic blues, because it's after Olympic athletes, we've dedicated our lives to making this thing happen. And then you you get done, whether you win the medal or not, you're done when you, when you decide to stop. And it's kind of like, is that, is that all there is? Like, really? It's over? 
Like, who am I without that? And so cultivating a sense of, hey, I matter, win or lose, I have me after the big event or whatever I'm pursuing. That's that's kind of been my experience. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. 
Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. It's funny because I'm I'm you know I've been trying desperately to get a book deal for the third book and you know it just hasn't been going anywhere. But I settled on this concept that I described like literally it came from you know something I heard from two or three podcast guests about you know having a portfolio of meaningful experiences in your life as opposed mm-hmm. to having one thing be the thing. But the funny thing is that you know we live in a culture that makes us think that this one thing is the key to all of it. Mm-hmm. It's the marriage. It's the you know gold medal. It's the you know prestigious job, whatever it is. Uh, so let's get into this whole idea of conflict. Um, I think to me, it's pretty hilarious that one of the first things you said in the book was that you've been a professional conflict avoider most of my life. And it's, I'm always amazed because I literally told people when I was in business school, like, what are you going to do when you graduate? I was like, as long as it has absolutely nothing to do with the internet, that is going to be what I work on for. Oh, okay. I guess, you know, fate has a sense of humor. Right. but one of the things you said is the prevailing perception is that good teams shy away from conflict. Doing so makes them look efficient or kind. The truth is they're holding back from experiencing precious moments. And I jokingly said to you, yeah, well, you haven't met my mom yet. Um, <laughs> but tell me how we, how we change this perception. I mean, I know where the perception comes from um, because you talk about the things that really do cause us to hold back from this, you know, which is, is opting out. But let's, let's go there. You know, where do we, how do we deal with this? Well, I really want to acknowledge, yeah, that I – have been a conflict avoider and it's still uncomfortable. It's not like, oh, conflict, yay. It's not the joy or the fun or the ease of conflict. But what I have cultivated and experienced over and over again is the benefit of hanging in in the discomfort. Now, your my dad, your mom, let's put them in the room and let them deal with each other. <laughs> <laughs> they are over the top, you know, there's those those sorts that yeah. I don't know if, you know, that's not the, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about sure. when you and your partner, whether it's business or life or a team starts to kind of has like an exciting goal, like a new book or a new project. And you've got these smart people, otherwise you wouldn't have them on your team. And they're passionate, hopefully about this. And what starts to happen is you have different opinions. And well, I think my opinion's right. And so I'm going to fight for my opinion. And then I'm going to try to Uh, make you wrong, me right. We start to control each other. And that's when that energy, that tension inside of me comes up like, wait a minute, uh uh-oh, he doesn't like my idea. And so there's tension inside of me and also tension between me and you or whoever else is in there. And what happens is our brains go, red alert, danger, danger, what can I do to get out of this? Mm -hmm. And that's really natural. But the what I have start, what I've learned is that tension and that ambiguity, like, uh oh, I don't know how this is going to work out. That that uncomfortable place is the source of potential energy. It's potential energy for creativity. Hmm. And when we go to our habitual styles, opt out styles, we call it in the book, of like either being a superstar, like I'm going to make it happen, or wait a minute, I'll agree with your idea just to get rid of this tension, or I'm going to go do something else, like superstar, accommodator, separator, we talk about. Yeah. If if I do that, it's like all this potential energy just gets drained. Uh. And we're, we're no longer holding this, uh, you know, this kind of discomfort together. But when we do, and we show up, and if I can be vulnerable enough to say, wow, I am really uncomfortable. This is not what I thought was going to happen. Uh-huh. So I, I show up vulnerably and real and <laughs> sometimes say, you know, I think I have no idea why you're thinking your idea is a good idea right now, but I'm going to try to be curious if I can even own that I'm not curious and then open what happens as soon as I own that I'm not curious, 
there's room for me to become curious. Uh, then all of a sudden different things start to occur. And it doesn't have to be everybody doing that. One person can shift that whole dynamic. And then okay. you get some creative ideas start popping. Okay. Let me take this out of the context of business and put it in context of a personal example, one that just came to mind as you were saying all of that. Every one of us has been on the receiving end of a phone call, text message, or the words, we need to have a conversation. I don't <laughs> Telling you, I don't think there's a guy in the history of the planet who has had that conversation end well. Every one of them got dumped. I'm convinced of this. I'm at the point in my life where if I got the text message, I would say, you know what? Let's just do this over text because I can't take another one of these phone calls. Aww. So that, with that in mind, um, how can I have stop? Like, how can I stop that visceral response to those words? Because literally, I'm like, oh, nothing good is going to come from this. Is my immediate reaction to that. Well, one, I want to acknowledge that it makes sense that it's your immediate reaction because you've kind of reinforced it. It sounds like you've had these experiences where it's happened over yeah. and over again, right? But who and, hasn't? Yeah. And um, <laughs> <laughs> so the idea for me, what happens for me is I had to start to, one, set, try to intervene on my own behalf because what starts to happen is I tell myself a habitual story and then I, my brain goes on red alert and I think there's pain coming and I can't... I can't deal with that. And so even doing some th simple things, if you want to cultivate a way through it, is to actually um, just even at a, at a body level, feel your feet and your seat, like bring your energy back down into your system. And literally, I have now, when I go into that, oh my God, oh shit, it was what we call it in the book. I imagine that I have this circuit breaker in my head that this alarm's gone off and I turn, I pull it back down, like I'm turning off the alarm. And I'm actually, I, and then recognize what story am I telling myself? And could I imagine that there's another possibility? And maybe you don't in that particular situation, you don't want to. Um, but it's more, what are you doing to your, you know, are you just going into protection mode or are you willing to open up and see what's possible? And that's really a personal choice yeah. at that point. It's, I think my, my natural tendency is to go into protection mode, which I think actually makes a perfect segue into these two thing, three things that you talk about in, in great detail, um, which I don't think we can cover entirely in one conversation, but you talk about, you know, the concept of welcoming fear as well as vulnerability and curiosity. And you say that, you know, when something is good enough, it's human nature to stop taking new risks for fear of putting a damper on productivity. Business as usual is highly seductive, particularly if that business has solid success. And it's kind of funny to me because, you know, I mean, I give a talk about, you know, unmistakable and the core idea is that best practices are bullshit. And that's why the people <laughs> who work for you aren't creative or innovative because you're just copying what other people have done. Uh, but I've seen this. I've seen this in people that I've worked with where good enough just becomes the standard. And I am not that person. And it drives me insane where, you know, you look at it and you're like, okay, we've reached a point of diminishing returns. It was like, well, no, not really. There's more that can be done. Yeah. Um, so I guess the what when we see that, it's like people, and this is also human nature for many people, um, uh, uh, really, we like certainty. Mm -hmm. And when we can get to certainty, we go, oh, great. Now I know I can repeat, you know, <laughs> and I can just do this, like going to my job nine to five. Well, you and I are both, you know, we're entrepreneurs. And so, of course, we didn't take the certainty route. So that says something for us right there. But when um, when people, that, that's even when there's a conflict on a team 
and people go to those opt-out styles, they're trying to get to certainty. Like I can, what can I control? And this is what I can control and repeat. And we are uncomfortable as human natures, you know, we, we, we are born helpless and then we spend the rest of our lives trying to get control and pretend we're not helpless. But we're really, we're heading straight into the other helpless end of the spectrum is we're going to die and we're going to die alone. And that's another really terrifying thought. So we do a lot of activity in our lives to give us a semblance of control. And I think that's where um, maintaining the status quo, we'll just do what we do. And clearly you and I are not like that because we, we like to improve things. But yeah. so many people play, play it safe and in that comfort zone. Uh-huh. I don't want to, because if you go out, you have to feel, you will feel vulnerable. You will feel uncertainty and you don't know, there is no like, answer in that Mm. place. And that ambiguity, that uncertainty, that vulnerability, not so comfortable for most of us. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about vulnerability. Uh, you know, both in the context of our personal and professional lives, I think Brene Brown has done an amazing job talking about the power of it, but I also think that other people have taken that mangled it, misinterpreted it (laughs) and viewed it as licensed to air their dirty laundry in any mm. public forum where somebody will listen to them. I know because I've done it. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, one of the things that you said is, you know, reveal what isn't being said, speak up about what's happening inside of you and drop the effort to look good. So a couple of years ago, had a bad breakup. I was going off the rails. My then mentor, who actually was the one who came up with the name Unmistakable Creative, I remember I distinctly said something to him when I was going through this. I said, yeah, Greg, but I'm human. And you know what he told me? He said, Shree, you don't get to make that excuse. You're a public figure. That's the price of doing what you do. And at the moment, I hated him for it. Mm-hmm. But to be honest, I honestly think he was right. Like there is a fine line. And you know, when you are in a position where everything you do at this point in my career is a representation of every other person who's bet on you, there's sort of a line between vulnerability and train wreck. What mm-hmm. is it? What does that <laughs> line lie? You know, I can really relate to your example with your mentor. And um, because... because you know, when we're working with leaders, there's one um, being one of the crowd, one one of the group, and then you can kind of be a peer. And then there's being one with, so you're the leader. And there there's this idea of you have a role if in your business you're you're the leader, and so you're you know public figure. You have a role, and then there's the human. Now the problem is we tend to get stuck on one end or the other. So, you know, being a train wreck in inappropriate settings is kind of being on the vulnerable spectrum in the wrong context mm-hmm. versus being the leader. And But most people get caught in, I can't be vulnerable. I can't let them see, see me sweat. And so they show no vulnerability. And we, we connect to people who are human, not like train wreck human, like, oh my gosh, I've got to take care of you because that's what it feels like when somebody is just splattered. All of a sudden, I have to take care of you and I feel overwhelmed and the roles are switched versus, wow, you're struggling and and I can relate to that. Just like you do on this podcast, you're telling very personal stories about you and... um, and so people, like you said in the beginning, I think you said, yeah, people learn from me through my life stories of how I relate to <laughs> my guests. Yeah. So I think that- I hope um, so anyways. <laughs> <laughs> right. I hope so too, because we're both telling them. <laughs> but it's that idea of um, sharing. And I think really vulnerability a lot is that 
that could be used so much more is right now, I don't have the right answer. Right now, I'm uncomfortable. Or right now, I'm uncertain. Whatever it is, like in the moment, not spilling my whole story and and then being in a puddle of tears and you having to pick, you know, take care of me. Mm-hmm. Do you get does that does that answer yeah. that question? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I like I said, I've asked multiple people some version of this question just because one, I'm writing a blog post about it, so it's research. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I just want to know, and particularly because you have a book about conflict, I thought it was highly relevant. Oh um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So one thing you talk about, you know, when we get to this whole idea of me, which is really, I think about the individual, you talk about power versus strength. And I think the thing that caught my attention the most was that our culture teaches us that when, you know, we seek an authority figure's approval, when we gain an authority figure's approval, we get a certain level of power and control. Babies learn quickly. If they cry, someone will pick them up or feed them. Basic cause and effect. Children learn that, you know, when they get good grades or win the game, they get approval. They learn that having the right answer and being right is much better than revealing that you don't understand. And I, I mean, look, I'm not going to go off on a tangent, uh, which I have a thousand times about why I think the education system is largely to blame for this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of the things that really kind of baffles me is how much less curious we become as adults. Uh, I think so much out of the fear of being wrong, uh, you know, and I, I can tell you that I have been wrong far more than I've been right. Uh, mm-hmm. to basically have a creative project that's inevitable when you have a large body of work. It, it's kind of, you know, the example I always give is, is Waterworld, which I think is the worst movie in the history of movies. <laughs> and it's like, but Kevin Costner is still acting, uh, yeah. even though that was a $100 million shit show. Uh, <laughs> but the thing is, there are a lot of people who their conditioning becomes, okay, I was wrong, so I'm not going to risk again. I'm not going to reveal that I don't know anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, it seems to me on the other side of that is almost always where you have the most interesting discoveries. So mm-hmm. how do we get back to that? How do you get back to that place of curiosity combined with vulnerability, which you actually defined as creativity? Mm-hmm. Uh, I can really, I call it the brittleness of failure or being wrong, which by the way, coming out of the Olympics, I was plenty brittle because I thought, oh, I, I was, I was wrong to lose. I was a loser. So don't talk to me. I've got to do everything perfect now. And so I, so even in that power and strength continuum, I really leaned over on the power side. How can I do my role? How can I um, look perfect? All those things that I thought that's going to give me safety and security. But what it gave me is I felt like I was inside out. There was nothing in me. And so my willingness, what, what I, I've, you know, touched on that I had a turning point at one point. And really what happened is I had to catch up with myself, which meant I had to feel what it felt like to lose and have the grief of losing and not being anybody and still coming to a sense of, and I'm still an okay person. But that was through processing my feelings about a painful situation, about my dad, about the molestation, about the Olympic loss. Those were three biggies that I spent time digesting at an emotional level. And when I did, I felt more whole. And when when people do that, there's a sense of coming not from the power place, but from the strength. The fact that I can tell you about all three of those incidences, there were times that, well, I'll tell you, I didn't tell my mom about the molestation until like 40 years later. It was a long, long, long time. So the fact that I can talk about it, and people may have reactions or whatever, but I still feel whole. Those things happen to me. 
And so I am more, I can be vulnerable and share that. And also be curious about your reaction. If you did have a reaction to it, that wasn't okay. I don't have to. So there's more resiliency in my system versus brittleness. Now, I don't know if I actually answered your initial connect question, but that's where I went with it. Hey, it's Trini. I hope you're liking this episode of The Unmistakable Creative. Did you know that every Sunday, our community manager, Melina, sends out 10 key takeaways from episodes like this one? All you have to do to receive it is sign up for our newsletter. Just visit unmistakablecreative.com slash newsletter, and you'll get them delivered right to your inbox. Again, that's unmistakablecreative.com slash newsletter. No, that's that's great. So uh, one thing you talk about when we get into the actual running of a business is the difference between tactics and strategy. And I think this is one of those things where people mistake tactics for strategy, which is why I think you end up having a lot of pale limitations of things that already exist. But there are two things that you you mentioned, wide view questions and narrow focus questions. Can you expand on what those are and how they apply? You know, Serena, I just love that you read our book and you're taking us through these different pieces. It's very clear. So I'm appreciating. Or you've read enough of these pieces. So that means well, I have a me. massive mind map in front of me of the entire book. So, I mean, I had to switch from my notes to my mind map because I didn't have time to finish writing the notes. So, yeah, I mean, I have it all mapped out because, again, like I said, I'm basically, you know, utilizing you very selfishly for my own reasons. <laughs> well, I love I've, our book's never been quoted so much. So it's just fabulous. Uh, um, so, why do you narrow? View. So yes, what often happens in businesses is <clears throat> typically big businesses, corporate businesses, you have your weekly weekly meeting and it winds up being, well, what are you doing? Well, what are you doing? What are you doing? And it's a, a status report. And that's very narrow focus. And it's important. It's We call it like the blocking and tackling. But often when we start to work, because we come in and do offsites, team offsites and for organizations and they're focused there and they're really um, starving for wider view uh, questions, answers to those questions. Because wide view, and maybe I should define that, but the wide view are really those bigger picture questions that frame everything we do. So Simon Sinek was great, you know, the why. Mm-hmm. Um, why are you doing what you do? And aligning that from a business all the way down to a personal, hey, how? what's my why for being in this business? So when we can, you know, um, like when Microsoft first started, it was to put a computer on every desk, a, you know, um, 3M is to solve unsolvable problems. Uh, no. Nike's at one point was the joy of crushing the competition. So those are c- like core purposes wise that if you go work for Nike, you've got to be competitive. If you're, <laughs> otherwise you're going to get <laughs> eaten up <in> culture. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so those are so the 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 wide view set the context. Why are we doing this? What are our values? Like Southwest Airlines, uh, humor is definitely one of their values because they, you know, their flight attendants are fun and everybody in the company. You want people in the company to whether it's the 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 janitor all the way up to the CEO to live the behavioral values. That creates a culture that feels aligned and you're in the right, you know, there's a fit, definitely uh-huh. a fit. Yeah. So those are some of the big questions. We have like three or four that we go through. And then what's most important right now? Like what is our, you know, three, six, nine month goal that we're running down the field to get to? And who's going to do what roles and responsibilities? How are we going to meet? All those things. A lot of times, they just companies just haven't really worked through that and are kind of reacting and firefighting no. and missing the bigger picture. 
It's funny. I, I remember the the why, and I was thinking about that because I was I was very fortunate that I got to actually have Simon Sinek walk me through what my why was. Oh, uh, touch you! Uh, oh, that is so cool. <laughs> yeah, and he. I remember this very distinctly because he said, "You're obsessed with people who are good at unusual things," and I'm like, "Thank you." What the hell am I supposed to do with that? And now you look back, you know, at our guest lineup. It's like, oh, bank robbers, drug dealers, performance psychologists, you know, authors, artists. Like, oh yeah, these people are all good at really unusual things. I I love it. Yeah. So it's it's funny how that plays out so much later. But I I guess, you know, like as you're saying that, my thought process was okay, like I have team members that I work with. How do I align my personal why with theirs? Um, And then I want to talk about one aspect of the five mistakes that you said stall a team. And that is working for consensus because, you know, my attitude is that consensus is bullshit. Like consensus and conformity is basically where innovative products go to die. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing we've ever done has been the byproduct of con- nothing we've ever done that's blown people away has ever been the byproduct of con- uh, consensus. I agree. Um, yeah, we a lot of people mistake our t- the fact that we want to work uh, help a group build their team, a leader build their team that we're working on consensus, and no, it slows everything down. And and really, as adults. We don't necessarily need to get our way, but we do need to feel heard and considered. And that's a piece that's often missed when a leader just makes a decision versus, whoa, 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 slow down. Just let the person know you actually, and really try on with curiosity what they're saying. Because we've we've worked with this uh, executive group in China and they, um, we had done, we usually do some interpersonal dynamics, what we call the healthy side of business for a two-day offsite. And then we move into their business strategy and we had, you know, taught them stuff. And on day, uh, day two, they started talking about their strategy. And this one woman had a definitely disagreeing, like a, a different opinion. And you should have seen everybody go to, go to shut her down. Like, no, no, you've got to agree with us. And so much so that they were getting up and literally physically backing her into a corner. And at that point we said, well, time out. <laughs> Can anybody you know, remember some of these skills, like get curious about what her point is. And so one guy was, you know, said, okay, I'm willing to do it. And he went over and he actually sat next to her and he said, okay, help me understand. You know, this is what I'm I'm understanding you're saying. And she's like, no, this is what I'm saying. And this is, you know, and so they started to have the dialogue and you could see the light bulb go off in his head. And then, so he started to talk about it. And so her opinion could have been shut down, but her opinion then started to transform what their actual strategy was going to be. And it totally shifted where they were going. So this isn't about consensus, but so often we shut down somebody's like a, a naysayer or a versus, wait a minute, why is that so important to you? And that was the question we had him ask. Like, why is this so important to you, woman that has a different opinion from all the rest of us? And that's where they got the spark of creativity. But if you're trying to get everybody on board, it's it's not going to work. But if you help them feel heard and considered, often when they walk, we talk about disagree and commit, Andy Groves. Um, uh-huh. When you walk out that door, your words and actions uh, are in alignment with the decision. Even if even if you still disagree, you're buying into what the team dis- the team agrees on, and uh-huh. that creates that cohesion. That's so wow. powerful in organizations. Well, it's funny because, you know, as I listen to you talk about all this stuff, like, you know, I think about it. I mean, we run a small team with maybe two or three people and I can see where it plays out there. But, you know, the more I hear about this, I'm like, oh, you know, I could go and apply this to my family. Although 
I know myself well enough and I know people well enough to know that like people will hear something and like this and like, perfect, I can solve my screwed up relationship with every person it's screwed up with using this. <laughs> and then they go and basically start these massive fights with them. And yes, I'm speaking through experience, having forward advice <laughs> from a podcast guest to the letter, only to have my mom chew my ass out. So mm-hmm. with that being said, um, taking everything that you've talked about here, how would you advise people to go about applying this to their personal life or even to their professional life without getting fired by their boss for being a jackass. <laughs> well, you know, cause that it, probably could happen based on well, this. Yeah. If people interpret your advice to the letter, that is entirely possible. It is a art, you know, it's not a step-by-step and it's cultivating your own presence to be able to show up really authentic in, in to sound trite, but you know, quote unquote authentic. And if I could, any advice, especially if your mom is sitting there yelling at you or your <laughs> <laughs> your boss is getting upset, to be in that moment to go, to actually step back and show up more vulnerably like, wow, this is not what I wanted to create. Or wow, I sure am uncomfortable with what's happening. Whatever yeah. is happening for you, because I, I think about, like, I think you, and I might be jumping ahead, but you ask people what makes somebody unmistakable to yep, them. We're about to get there. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, what is so powerful, and this is Susan Clark, um, my wife and business partner, what always has amazed me about her is in any, which is ma- what makes us such a good team when we go to deal with a team that's in conflict, is she will be real. As her, She's not facilitating and stepping out. She will be like, wow, I am in I am really uncomfortable or wow, I did not see that coming. And what happens is that realness drops everybody into the moment because everybody's freaking trying to figure out, oh my God, how am I going to get out of here? How am I going to, you know, this is uncomfortable. And when, as soon as someone, anyone shows up more real, it can shift the dynamic uh, in that moment. So that would be my advice is to to try to report what's happening for you, not about the other person, but mm. about what's going on inside of you. Wow. Well, I think you answered my last question before I asked it. So um, I can't I, thank you enough for, please, do you have another answer to it? No, I was just, I was no. like, oh, darn, we're done. <laughs> I <was happy laughs> done. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I think this has been really, it's been eye-opening, thoughtful, hilarious, and just super fun. Uh, I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and to share your insights and your story with our listeners. I mean, as I told you, you have the best book publicist in the world. Like every publishing company on the planet should hire her because she Cher gets is, people like you she's guys. She's awesome. She is yeah. awesome. I love her too. Uh, so, um, well, where can people find out more about you guys, your work, everything else that you're up to and the book? Yeah. So you can find out our business is Thrive Inc. So that's www.thriveinc.com, thriveinc.com. And our book is The Beauty of Conflict for Teams. We have a business book. We have a couple's book, The Beauty of Conflict for Couples. And we also have a podcast, The Beauty of Conflict, (laughs) which is how to deal with conflict at home or at work or anywhere else in your life. And we have lots of interesting guests, so we might have you. (laughs) And um, it's, um, yeah. And you can find us on Facebook, Chris Marie and LinkedIn, Chris Marie Campbell, uh, a pretty unique name. Amazing. And for everyone listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? 
Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. 
This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.